Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello everyone and welcome to Work in Progress, the personal productivity science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I am your host, Joanna. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Joanna, and welcome back to Personal Productivity Podcast. On today's topic, we are going to talk about job burnout. However, we're going to focus more on some of the positives and how we can renew our enthusiasm at work while achieving a decent work-life balance. So today I'm going to be joined by Paula Davis to talk about how some strategies to help overcome job burnout in the workplace can help set up our future personal productivity. So Paula is the CEO of the Stress and Resilience Institute, author of Beating Burnout at Work and a global expert specializing in burnout prevention, resilience and well-being. She is also qualified to teach resilience skills within high stress professions. Hi Paula, thanks so much for joining us today. Hello, I'm so delighted to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, of course. I think today is going to be really great. I'm super excited to talk to you about today's topic as well. Um, But first, I'd love to ask you if you could introduce a bit more about yourself and what it is you do. Yes. So I uh, come to all of you as a former practicing lawyer who burned out during my what became the last year of my law practice. And that is what made me uh, really interested to go back and study workplace well-being. So I've been doing that now for more than 10 years. And I wear a lot of hats in my work, so I do um, a lot of teaching, a lot of training, a lot of workshops, a lot of speaking, a lot of writing, um, all sorts of uh, all sorts of wonderful all sorts of wonderful things, all under the topic of workplace well being. Awesome. So I do, as you mentioned, you've been a lawyer before, but I know that you've gone from law to being a student to the army and now to a business owner. Can you tell me a bit about that journey and how you found yourself where you are today? Yes, I can tell you when I started law school, I did not think that I would one day be working with army drill sergeants and soldiers and that I would have the taken the path that I ended up taking. But Uh, As I mentioned, I experienced burnout myself and I didn't know what it was and it lasted for about a year and uh, turned into some not so great health consequences. And so I made a really tough decision to leave my law practice and go back and get a master's degree in something called applied positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. So that was just a phenomenal year-long experience where I I actually diagnosed myself. Once I started reading all the research about all of these well-being topics, I I went like, oh, I I was burned out. That's what that was called. Uh, And then I had the great privilege of doing my postgraduate work still at Penn, uh, working in uh, teaching and training their version of their uh, Penn Resilience Program to Army drill sergeants and soldiers and officers and their families. Um, and did that for about four years. So again, something completely unexpected, um, super life changing. Uh, one of the most amazing things I have ever done. 
both professionally and personally, something that really just changed my life in so many wonderful ways. Um, and then started my business and uh, really started to translate a lot of what I had taught, what I had learned uh, across industries. So I've worked with um, most industries, um, still do a lot of work in the legal profession, uh, and uh, have just had just a fantastic time uh, on this on this unexpected, most unexpected but wonderful journey. Yeah, that honestly sounds really amazing and quite the journey that you've been on. So it's really also great to hear that you've personally experienced burnout as well. Um, and that's something we can get into later. Um, but I'd love to ask you about your science help approach that you take to your work. Can you tell me a bit more about what that is? Yes. So as a former practicing lawyer, I like a little evidence. I like my evidence. And so um, it's <laughs> important for me to have... Uh, some sort of empirical basis backing most, if not all, of the skills that I teach in the work that I do. And so rather than thinking about it as self-help, I like to call it science help. So I, I feel like my job is to take all of these wonderful and lofty research papers and distill them down into very usable nuggets for people, whether it's in their personal life or whether it's at work, um, so that they can do something quickly and meaningfully, but know that there is a little bit of science behind it. Um, a lot of the strategies that I teach and talk about, I've tried myself um, and have used myself uh, and oftentimes have helped myself. <laughs> uh, so I always like to uh, find those strategies and then pay it forward. Yeah, amazing. And I feel like when things are a bit more science backed, you feel like what you're doing has some credibility to it and you can trust it a bit more as well. So that must be really helpful. It's so helpful. And, you know, I speak to I speak to a lot of leaders. I speak to a lot of senior leaders, uh, C-suite folks who are expecting that. Right. So it's it's not only important for me, but it's really, I think, what a lot of uh, folks in the workplace quite honestly demand and I think rightfully so. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. We now have a section called Have You Met Paula? So we're just going to move into some more get to know you questions. They're a bit lighthearted and fun. So my first one for you is books. Do you have a favorite book at all? Or anything you're reading at the moment? Yes. So one of the the first book that pops into my mind when you ask that is Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. So uh, it took me a while to really recover from my burnout. And I had to peel back a lot of layers of what I thought I should be as a busy professional, what I thought I should be as a good, you know, fill in the blank, you know, lawyer, teacher, what have you. In uh, her work, on vulnerability, her work on shame really uh, transformed my life. And it was, I've read now literally everything that she's written, but I think it was that book really that galvanized for me, my understanding of what all of that meant and really helped me to start to do some, some deeper work, some self-awareness work around, you know, some narratives and things that I really had to think about, reevaluate and probably let go of. Okay, amazing. Thanks for sharing that one with us. I've never heard of it before. I'm guessing that's non-fictional. Yes. Yes, beautiful. Well, um, I've got now like a massive list of books that I've had recommended from a bunch of different guests, so I will add that one to the list as well. Um, my next one for you is movies. Are you into movies at all? Yeah, I, I am, you know, which is uh, sort of weird. I was thinking about this. I haven't been to a movie. I go to very few movies in the movie theater and I'm not sure why. Mm. 
Um, so yeah. I tend to watch some more at home, but I, the last movie that I went to in the movie theater was Top Gun Maverick. Um, and I went yeah. quite I think only like the second time ever in my life I've gone to see a movie in the movie theater twice. And the first one was Jurassic Park way back in the day. So I'm dating myself a little bit. Um, but <laughs> no, I, love, I love Top Gun Maverick. And so that was that was the first one that um, that popped into my mind. Yeah, I love that movie. I hadn't watched the first one, actually, and I watched the second one, and I was like, I probably won't like this, but I absolutely loved it. It was so good. So I totally understand why you watched it twice in the movies as well. Did you go back and watch the first one? Because I feel like that connects some dots for you that you need for the second one to kind of you, like make total sense. Yeah, I went and watched the first one, and then I was like, oh, Okay, those references make a lot more sense now. It's kind of like mind blowing as well because I understood what everyone else was getting really excited about because I was sitting in the movies and I was like, oh, everyone's getting really excited. I don't know why. So I went back and I watched it and I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense now. And then from the opening, you know, the opening song um, from Kenny Loggins and that uh, the, the, the music that starts and the way that the story starts and some of the characters. Yeah, so I'm glad you did that. Yeah, no, it was definitely a good choice. Awesome. Well, my next one for you is podcast. Is there anything that you're listening to at the moment or you into podcasts? I don't listen to a ton of podcasts, which is so weird because um, I love being on them as guests. Uh, but the one that I has, has caught my attention and I've only watched a couple of episodes, but I'm really getting into it is the, um, I wrote it down, it's the Smart Less podcast. It's got Sean Hayes and Jason Bateman and Will Arnett and they are... Um, three actors here who are very popular, um, certainly in the United States, but have a worldwide presence. But they're very, very funny, and uh, their their interactions and their interviews are really, really just fantastic. I think I've heard of that podcast. Actually, it sounds very familiar. I might have listened to one episode maybe a while back. Um, but what types of interviews do they do? It's a lot of just banter amongst themselves. Um, I think they'll have celebrities on and, and talking to to folks, uh, you know, actors, actresses, friends of theirs. You know, they have a lot of famous friends. And so they'll have folks on the podcast and just it's, it's just very lighthearted and funny. And, uh, you know, they get into some topics every now and again, but it's it's just it's just great. They're they're just great. That's all all of them, but certainly the three of them. Yeah, I think I actually listened to an episode with Jennifer Aniston and I really loved it. So I think that's what it was. Yes. Yep. She's really good friends, um, I think, all of them, but especially Jason Bateman. So. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Yep. Beautiful. I, I know well, who these people are. But <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Well, you know more than I do, so... <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, my last one for you is, do you have a famous role model? Um, and when I do ask this question, sometimes it's a bit tricky because like, it's hard to pick just one person, but it could even just be someone in your own life. Yes. And, I, and so I, that's the route I was going to go anyway, because I don't really have, um, I would say a famous role model. Uh, I don't tend to necessarily gravitate toward famous people as being, um, people who I see influencing my life. Um, and so the person that I thought of was my dad. So he's very much uh, the person who um, is always the first person who I say when when people ask me about a positive ro role model. So um, not only just from a life perspective, but he and my mom owned a business for 15 years. So they get a lot of my entrepreneurial spirit and uh, what have you from, from him and from them and, and sort of the life path that they took. So they were 
Um, and he was very much uh, a model for me to, you know, hey, you know, try to make the bold choice and, and maybe try something new and starting your own business can be a way to do that. So. Yeah, amazing. What a lovely inspiration. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I think we can jump into interview questions now. So my first one for you is how would you personally define job burnout? So I think of job burnout as the manifestation of chronic workplace stress. And so there's a couple of uh, points of emphasis in that definition. So chronic is certainly one of them. So we all have bad days. We all have you know stressful moments and times when we feel tired and overworked and overloaded. Um, but it's more often than not those things are happening, which is what leads to burnout. So that chronic word is important. Uh, the word workplace is important. So if we are talking about burnout, the World Health Organization um, also made this clear when it updated its definition of uh, burnout, I think back in 2019, said that if we're talking about burnout, we're talking about something that has some or a lot of like an organizational or a workplace root or cause associated with it. And so the word burnout has become overused. We use it all the time in all manner of respects. Um, but that's one thing that I always like to emphasize is that true burnout, if we're talking about that, is really something that's associated with our experience with work. Yeah. So do you think that the cause of burnout always stems from stress or like you said, can it come from a variety of different elements? This is a fantastic question. And this is another thing, another piece of the burnout puzzle that we oftentimes get wrong or misunderstand. So I always tell folks when I'm uh, talking to groups, if we're noticing burnout in our teams or ourselves, we have to take a step back and look at what are what's driving it. What are the core sort of root causes for what's sprouting burnout in our teams and in our work organizations? And the research tells us there are six big ones that we have to pay attention to. So the first one has been a big one. Um, probably I would say by far the number one driver of burnout that I have seen over the past few years, certainly, and that is unmanageable workload. Just so many people reporting they've got too much to do. I'm doing the work of three people. I've got... Uh, you know, I'm trying to get my arms around the workload and I feel like I'm treading water and at all, like any point I'm going to sink. And so that's really something to pay attention to. But a very close second is lack of recognition. And this is an area I've become really interested in. Uh, a lot of workplaces don't do recognition well for a whole host of reasons. There's not a lot of appreciation that can lead to people mm. feeling like they're kind of just a cog in the wheels. Like I'm just showing up and is anyone really like, noticing that I'm here and I'm actually trying to make a positive impact. So that's a big one. Um, but it's also things like um, lack of community. You know, we don't have a cohesive team. I don't have a lot of flexibility. So that lack of autonomy is a big one. Um, things are unfair. So unfairness is things like favoritism or there's changes going on and no one's really saying anything. And it feels like there's lots of closed door meetings and whispers happening and no one's giving us a sense of what's happening. It's also, you know, just organizational politics and red tape. And then the last one is when our values don't connect. So there are certain things that I value about work and I want from my work experience, but my work environment just isn't giving me that. And so there's a mismatch or a disconnect and that can be very stressful. So those are really the six big buckets that that we need to be paying attention to when it comes to where is all of this stress about work coming from? 
Yeah, for sure. And do you think that it falls upon the organisation or, you know, wherever you work to create a better work environment or should the individual be the one to recognise this burnout and work towards, you know, a solution? Okay. This is a fantastic question and I always... Well, it depends on who I'm talking to because if I'm talking to a group of, say, individual contributors, they're oftentimes sitting there saying, like, like it's it's the leader, it's the organization, it's the workplace, it's mm. the environment that's driving all of this. And then when I'm talking to leaders, <laughs> okay, so you're telling me what? Individuals don't have to pay attention to their stress and it's all on my shoulders to have to figure out what I'm with? And so um, there's oftentimes very much this, like, you know, cross-blaming effect that's going on. And the answer is it's really both. I call it um, the fact we need to take a me and a we approach to burnout prevention, but it's not a 50-50 split. So I think leaders think that individual contributors have way more control over the manifestation of burnout than they actually do. So for me, I know like on my side, I had to really look at the fact that I'm a people pleaser. I say yes all the time to work stuff. I can engineer an unmanageable workload for myself very, very easily. I don't have a lot of boundaries in that area. So that's been a huge thing. I'm a recovering perfectionist. I'm very achievement oriented. And so all of those things drive really great things for me, but also a lot of stress. And so if I don't tend to the stress that comes from those things, I'm going to create a problem. So that's on me. Those things are on me. Uh, but from uh, from on the leader side, I mean, when we were just talking about those core six causes, it's very much more within the control of a leader or those who are senior in an organization to figure out and understand, okay, what do we have to do about a workload? Because if we're talking about a workload problem, we, ha- we need workload solutions. We can't just offload people to an app or some sort of like one-off well-being program and expect them to just get better at dealing with doing the work of three people. We actually need to deal with what does work, what does a healthy workload need to look like in this organization? And that's oftentimes things that leaders can more easily control. So I would say if we're looking at the split between, you know, individual, you know, contributing to stress and, and leaders being able to deal with that when it comes to burnout, it's probably more like, I would say 70-30 leader responsibility, 70 individual 30, just because there's so much of that root cause issue that's driven by things that are controllable or at least more easily managed by by leaders and, and organizations. Yeah. And what if one side isn't pulling their weight? What happens then? That that can get frustrating, and I, I hear this sentiment a lot from leaders, um, in, in part because I think they're just frustrated and they want to do right by their people and their teams, and they just don't. They're just like, ah, if you could just like help me out here, and you know, mm. that would be wonderful and that would be fantastic. Um, but uh, but that's difficult, and so uh, you know, there's only so much I think that we can do for individuals in terms of giving them stress management techniques and well-being related programs. And those things certainly help. And I think they're really important and they serve a purpose. They're just not necessarily the right tools to prevent and fight burnout because it's such a specialized area of stress. And so it's also frustrating for a lot of individual contributors who are like, I have a micromanaging boss. I've got, I'm in a work environment that's toxic. Um, I got a lot of issues going on here at work with the way that work is structured and organized. And that's frustrating because when the leader side organization side doesn't pull their weight, 
it definitely is felt by individual contributors and there's not as much control that they have to to maneuver through that so it's, it's just hard yeah yeah and I'm starting to realize that there are so many elements at play here. I feel like personal things like, oh, I'm a perfectionist, but I love my job. And then, oh, I'm working at an organization that's not really prioritizing creating the kind of work environment I need to thrive. So it's like, that's really stressful. And that sounds really stressful. It's very stressful. And in, what's interesting is, um, so there's three big dimensions of burnout. So a lot of people will ask me, how do I know if it's just stress or if I'm kind of crossing over into that burnout land? And mm. the three pieces are feeling a sense of chronic exhaustion. So physical and emotional exhaustion, again, chronic. So more often than not, uh, chronically feeling a lost enthusiasm and cynical. So people annoy you, people bother you. You don't want to be around people, people who you used to feel called to help now are frustrating to you and annoying to you. And then that last bucket is a sense of why bother, who cares? Like, ah, not, you know, doesn't matter anyway what I do. It's just it's, I'm disengaged and, and really nothing's going to be able to fix that. And so what I'm noticing more and what the research is also picking up on is a very specific classification of those three. I'm seeing a lot of people who are feeling very exhausted, a lot of people who are, who are frustrated and cynical, but they're also though not yet feeling that why bother, who cares? They're still thinking to themselves, I've got some energy, I know I'm doing some good work, I feel like I can make a contribution, I can do something, but maybe not here. Like this environment, this work environment, this team isn't giving me the resources or the tools or the environment or the framework or whatever it is that I need to be able to showcase what I know I can do and how I can make an impact. And so I'm going to potentially think about going somewhere else. And so that's a that's an important really like sort of classification for leaders in particular to pay attention to. Uh, because there's a lot of turnover intention. There's a lot of, hmm, maybe the grass is greener over here. Uh, when I feel like that. So I'm not necessarily technically burned out, but I got two out of the three components and it's really driving me to wonder, should I stay here or should I go somewhere else? Yeah. And along the lines of like those types of questions, what are some other sort of important questions we should ask ourselves to reevaluate our jobs and assess whether or not we are experiencing burnout? So one thing I think that's really important, and I tell folks this a lot, is to think about the interplay between your job demands and your job resources. So asking yourself, what are my job demands? And the way that the burnout research defines a job demand is anything that takes consistent effort and energy about your work. So in some of my workshops, I'll literally have people make a list. What are the things that take consistent effort and energy about your work? What are you constantly doing? You're answering emails all the time. You're going to meetings and dealing with cranky clients or whatever it is. And then ask yourself, what are my job resources? So these are the motivational and energy giving aspects of our work. And oftentimes it can be somewhat effortful for people to think about that. Um, but it's really important. And the two lists don't have to equal out, but they just have to sort of balance from a psychological and motivational perspective. But that's those are two really powerful questions. And then we have to think about also, uh, you know, do I have the right relationships? Um, I'm dealing with a lot of stress and do I have people who I can rely on uh, in a way that's going to help me be able to deal with a, a number of different facets of the stress that I'm experiencing? So those are three big, I think, good entry points for people to start to think about with that. 
Yeah. And how does experiencing job burnout influence our productivity or, you know, an employee's ability to be productive at work? Yeah, this is huge because when we're starting to feel that sense of burnout, we don't even have to be all the way like fully in burnout. Um, When we are, I mean, that can be uh, a whole host of issues. So think about burnout on a spectrum. And so early, very early, early morning signs of burnout, burnout are things like procrastination. I mean, this was huge for me. I started to push my boundaries in terms of when I got into work. It would be later and later and later until someone finally called me on it and I realized I had gone too far with that. <laughs> uh, but so it's, um, you know, the procrastination, it is I'm not as efficient or productive as I typically am. Uh, it is inability to concentrate. It is, um, I call it every curveball is a major crisis. So typically I've got a lot of work, but I have it sort of situated or oriented the way that I need it to. And people, you know, ask me little one-off questions or can I help with this? Or here's another little project. And when I'm not burned out, I can handle that. Okay. When I'm starting to go toward burnout, that's frustrating and a little ask for help, like a level one ask can elicit a level 10 response because you're just stressed and you're frustrated and it's like, leave me alone. So when you're feeling that those early stages of, you know, procrastination and, you know, not as productive and you might be a little bit more cranky and you can't concentrate as well, that's certainly going to impact your productivity uh, in, a, in a whole host of ways. Um, the further down the line you get with burnout, where I ended, I mean, burnout can really kick the door open to things like anxiety, to depression, other mental health consequences, um, where you can just, you know, wake up going, how in the world am I going to make it through the day? And so, I mean, that's a whole other side of the productivity equation. So it can it can impact our ability to focus all the way to um, you know, I'm maybe dealing with a mental health consequence here that I really need to maybe potentially even take some time off of work for to deal with. And then there's, a, you know, a whole host of places that you can be in between. But burnout is linked to presenteeism, to absenteeism, to uh, lower job satisfaction, to turnover intention and a whole host of things. And all of those things mess with our ability to be productive. Yeah, for sure. And do you think that these factors, you know, affect a particular sort of age group or demographic more than the other? Uh, You know, what's interesting is some of the newest research is really pointing to like the younger millennials and Gen Z as experiencing really, really high rates of stress and burnout. And it's interesting to me because when I talk to leaders about this, there's a lot of perplexed looks like, how can they be burned out already? <laughs> they haven't heard like yeah. they haven't worked like two years, five years, you know, six years. Like, what in the world is is the cause of that? And I think that you know, kind of go back to that list of core six that I talk about talked about earlier. There's a lot of disconnects there. I think that there's a lot of meaning that uh, younger workers are wanting from their jobs. Their values. They they have such a clear perspective about what they value and want from work. And a lot of work environments aren't matching that, and that can become stressful for them. They seek to be in a close knit community and want to be able to work with and grow teams and be part of a team. And when that's fractured, that's hard to deal with. And so the other thing you have to think about is when you're just starting your career, you're newer into your career. You don't necessarily have those resources built up yet to buffer some of the stress. You might not have developed the right relationships yet. 
a lot of people who are new to their world of work don't have the autonomy and flexibility yet built up uh, to be able to, you know, to, to have some choice and say over their work day or what they do or where they work and how they work. And so all of those things kind of converge at the beginning part of your career. And if you don't have people who you can reach out to, people who you can vent to, people who can kind of show you how to maneuver the political landscape of work, people who appreciate you and will tell you um, that you're doing a good job, that's stressful for a lot of folks. And so I, it, it, it doesn't totally surprise me that we're seeing that, but I also see um, folks, you know, who are, I'm, I'm a young Gen X and, and young Gen Xer. Um, folks who are my age are kind of in the, in that sandwich piece right now where we've got young kids or kids. And so we've got that family piece and they're also dealing with aging parents. And so a lot of us have stress related to that piece of the life puzzle also. So I think each generation sort of brings a little bit of a different, um, kind of stress puzzle to this that can open the door to burnout. So it doesn't matter really what age you are, but those are really two big pockets that I see. Also though, folks who are nearing retirement, that can be very stressful. It's just spent you know, my life at this job and for a lot of people, work has become their identity. What am I gonna do with my life and what does my life look like if I don't have work to rely on? And so that's very stressful for that cohort of folks as well. So. Um, you know, so there's, there's big things to talk about in each, in each category. Yeah, for sure. And I think that whole idea of work becoming someone's identity has become so like resonant in like the lives of younger people, because we can see how young people are just so driven these days. You know, they've seen how the world's grown up. They've seen their parents at work. They've seen people around them and how hard they've worked. And I feel like that really contributes to the pressure to become something and, you know, be successful. So I feel like now we're seeing younger people work harder at an even younger age. And I guess that can also be why burnout um, is caused within that age group as well. Sure. And I mean, you know, for, for folks in younger generations, I mean, they've, they've seen their parents um, potentially struggle through the, you know, the great, uh, what was it called? The great recession, the economic collapse really of, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, where a lot of people lost jobs that were considered to be, you know, pretty safe types of jobs to lose. They've lived through COVID. They've, you know, experienced some really big events, work and life events. And I think that's really shaped and influenced how they see the world of work and what they really want. And that meaning piece and that creating um, an impact and that that's uh, the, the, the connection to social justice and other causes and big issues of that nature become really important for them. They want their companies to stand for something. They want to know that they're making an impact and are standing for something. And when they don't get that, uh, that's something that, you know, that can be, that can be certainly stressful. So we have to kind of take a step back because they see a lot of generational pointing of fingers also. And we have to think about, you know, what was the context that these cohorts grew up in? Who were they influenced by? What world events shaped how they see their world of work and therefore what are the narratives that we each carry in each generation around what work is supposed to look like and you know what you you know what you're supposed to do at work and when you can expect to get a promotion and all of these things that come up and so uh, i think that's a really important consideration 
for for folks because I, I hear so much about the generational differences. Yeah, definitely. And I've got some stats here that according to an Asana study, around 84% of Gen Z, 74% of millennials and 47% of baby boomers report burnout at work um, or work-related stress. So burnout isn't like anything that's new and it's something that's definitely increasingly present. Um, Do you see it becoming like this really sort of pertinent thing in everyone's lives? Yes. And one of the things I want to highlight in your statistics is there were there were no statistics around Gen X. So I just have to say, like, I feel like Gen X is sort of like we're, we're like the forgotten, you know, all the funny <laughs> Gen X because we're the, such a small we're such a small cohort. <laughs> but we're I, I feel we're the bridge between the boomers and the millennials because we were mm-hmm. raised by boomers, but we're raising millennials and Gen Z. And so we yeah. see kind of like both sides of the equation. And so. Just putting a plug in for my own generation, which is oftentimes forgotten. Uh, (laughs) But um, and so, sorry. What was your question? (laughs) That's okay. No, I love the plug. Um, No, my question was: Do you see like burnout becoming sort of even more like prevalent in our lives as we continue? I, you know, that's a that's a really good question. I think burnout was a huge issue before the pandemic. And no one was really talking about it in the way that they're talking about it now. So I feel like if there is part of a silver lining that has come from the pandemic, it is that it's ripped the Band-Aid off of the burnout conversation. And I think part of what what did that, at least when I talked to leaders, a lot of leaders would say they didn't even think burnout was a thing, right? This just means it was somebody who, uh, you know, couldn't hack it at their work or just was the wrong fit for their work. Or they tried to explain it in some other way, but they saw it so front and center during the pandemic. And a lot of leaders said, I I actually felt this thing called burnout. And so it must be real because I, you know, I experienced it. And so I love that we're having that conversation. Um, so I don't, I don't know that it's that, you know, like the rates are like higher, probably a little bit. And it depends on what, you know, industry or profession that you're talking about. I'm just glad that we're finally having the conversation about something that has been a serious issue for quite some time, but that we're now like labeling it, learning how to talk about it. And one of my goals certainly is to educate people in the right way around what these things really are so that we're at least having the right conversation about what we need to be doing to hopefully start to ease it a little bit. Yeah. And in terms of like that aspect of easing like job burnout, I feel like it's far easier said than done, but simply just quitting a job isn't always the answer. What's like a more positive take? And obviously not everyone is privileged enough to just be like, oh, I'm just going to quit my job because, you know, I don't want to do it anymore. No, and I'm very much the exception to the rule of that. And I, I will tell you, I struggled a lot. My first my first uh, sort of strategy or thought when I was burning out and finally got to that end stage where I realized I had to do something different. I just didn't know what different was and it took me a while to figure that out. Uh, my first instinct or impulse was not to leave the legal profession. I actually went to my boss at my, I was in-house, I was in a corporate legal department in a corporation and I went to my boss and I said, look, I'm struggling. Uh, do I have to continue to do these commercial real estate deals that I'm doing? I would love to put a pause on that for a while and just learn a different aspect of the law. I figured that would be reinvigorating, that would be motivating, that would be something different and something that I actually really thought I wanted to do. And he was totally cool with that. And the senior folks in our department were not. And so 
I thought about going back to the law firm that I had been to because I had done really well there and there were some reasons why that didn't make sense. And so um, that's really where I felt the most helpless, I think, and frustrated because I was trying to find a path forward that made sense for me without having to make such a pivot. And I just couldn't figure it out. And so that's really when I decided, okay, you've always wanted to own a business. Thought it was going to happen later in your career, but I guess we're going to do it now. And and that's really part of what, you know, caused that decision for me. But it was a very much a struggle and wasn't my first, you know, immediate, immediate choice. And so you're right. Most people can't just do that. Um, we've got bills and we've got families and we've got things that we have to focus on. And so, you know, if you are in an organization, if you do have, you know, the ability to at least have a conversation with someone about maybe um, shifting the type of work that you do, uh, maybe shifting the type of schedule that you're working on. Um, can you shift departments? You know, doing whatever you can to try and, and sort of change that within the environment that you're in, I think can be really, really helpful. Um, but it, you know, it just depends on what your situation is. And if your workplace environment is truly toxic, if you, if it is really something that is making you sick, uh, and that happens for a fair number of people, I think it's wise to consider maybe not changing your career and like dropping what you, you know, trained in and doing something else, but that you might have to think about, you know, another organization or a different type of work within the same industry. So there's a lot to explore. For folks, and it also depends on you know that spectrum of burnout. Where are you at with within within that spectrum? Yeah, for sure. And are there any other strategies that we can talk about to help people you know overcome job burnout? Any simple things that they can start with if they feel like they're coming across as though they might be experiencing job burnout? Yeah. So it depends. So it, like it depends on are you burned out or are you going toward burnout? So if you are not yet burned out, I think that's where a lot of those well-being strategies can help. So what types of boundaries are you setting or not setting and how can you be more effective at that? Uh, are you taking on too much such that you could or maybe need some coaching or some help around being more organized or being able to delegate more work to other people? Um, do you need to have a conversation with your boss or somebody in your workspace around the quantity or amount of work that you have. So it's kind of taking a step back and thinking about um, what are the pieces of the puzzle that I really need to have influenced? Where where are my sort of short-sightedness or my problem areas? How can I get those fixed? And then um, what conversations or what do I need to do going forward? Um, do I need to incorporate more of those basic self-care practices, which is always a good starting point for people when it comes to your stress levels and well-being? And so um, I know I ditched those pretty early on in my law career. You know, stopped exercising and I didn't hang out with my friends as much. And that's why they're so critical to how I stay, you know, well now because I did so bad at it back then. So it's those types of cluster of things if you're not yet burned out that can really, really help. You gotta, you gotta shore up all of those loose ends. Now, if you're already feeling burned out, again, it depends on where in the burnout spectrum you are. So usually at some point, you have to have a conversation with somebody in order to get better or order to fix whatever it is that you need to have done. And so then it becomes, uh, you know, making sure that you are talking to somebody who you trust, making sure that you're very specific about what it is that you're experiencing, what it is that you want or need, 
and what you hope to kind of get going forward. Because some people may want to take an extended leave of absence or may need to because they're dealing with a health consequence now that is so serious that they have to really kind of take a step back. Um, for some people, they just want to let their boss know what's going on and just say, hey, could we just have a touch base like every couple of weeks just to monitor the situation? Do you have any suggestions, you know, dear leader, in terms of, you know, what can be done? And I find that most leaders are really open to wanting to help, you know, to the extent that they can, you know, help people figure out what it is. So that's a, it's a, it's an easy question, but it's a complicated answer because it depends on where you are on that spectrum and in that world of stress and burnout that will kind of help influence where you need to go. But those are those are some pieces. Yeah, amazing. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I guess what we can take from that is that it's also a very individualistic experience. Not everyone experiences burnout in the exact same way. 100%. And that's also where I think we go wrong with thinking about burnout because we tend to think about burnout as the people who are so fried and frazzled that we know we'll know them if we see them because they're so stressed out. <laughs> um, but we don't wear yeah. a sign that says, I'm burned out. And we don't think about burnout in terms of the nuances and the spectrum of it. And so we have to start being a little bit more creative and asking questions, you know, at all manner of experience in our world of work so that, and we have to get to know everybody. I mean, this is one of the things that hybrid work makes harder is we don't see each other every day and we don't see each other in the same way where I might catch sooner like wow she's really like snippy today or this is this is not her usual personality or he's being a little bit um you know he's not coming into work as frequently we, we start to lose some of the ability to see some of those nuances sooner rather than later and that's just I mean this is a challenge that we're we're living in right now so yeah, I feel like it's such a modern day thing. And I guess we have to learn to be more aware of it happening around us and it happening to ourselves as well. Yes. Great. And just in the case of, you know, an employee has identified that maybe it's their workplace that's right. causing this burnout. So how can they bring up the topic of experiencing job burnout to their manager or, you know, leaders, you know, that isn't, you know, super confrontational and that will result in conflict? Yes. So I think kind of a little bit to the, to what I was saying earlier about how, um, you know, you got to get your facts straight and you've got to understand what it is that is happening and how to talk about it in a very fact-based way. So you, if you are experiencing, say, a micromanaging boss and you've identified somebody else in the organization that you want to go talk to, uh, you know, you don't want to go in like blaming somebody or with, you know, any sort of, uh, you know, he or she is like causing me all this stress. You know, you want to be very fact based about your environment and what you're seeing and what are some of the emotions that are coming up for you? How is this impacting your productivity and keeping it, you know, very, very fact based and very, you know, straight line like that. Um, and you also have to be clear about what it is that you're seeking and what you want. And if you're not clear about that, it's not it's not wrong or bad. Uh, it's just that it's going to be harder for somebody to help you if you're not sure what you want or need or how you want to be helped. And so I think those are two really big things to think about. Like, and, and I think you have to be very intentional with this conversation to the point where I would often recommend for folks if, if we were, this is a good exercise to go through in one-on-one -on -one coaching also, 
is that you really not script word for word, but script the talking points that you really want to hit with whoever it is that you're talking to, whether it's someone in HR, whether it's your direct manager, whether it's, you know, somebody else who you trust within the organization. But at some point you have to say something about it. And that's one of the areas that I really went wrong in as I held it in. And I loved my boss at the time, but I still, I mean, I have a licensable degree. I didn't want to say anything to anybody about feeling stressed and everybody else seemed to be handling their stress just fine. So um, it's a very intentional process and thing to think about, but um, it's going to be hard to get better and avoid that conversation. Yeah. And I feel like there's a bit of a stigma around, you know, admitting your weaknesses or admitting that you're struggling, especially like you said, when everyone else around you seems to be just doing perfectly fine. So how can we begin to break that down and feel okay with coming forward? It's so hard. And I've seen it with the soldiers that I've worked with and I've seen it in all, I've seen it with the lawyers who I've worked with. I've seen it with the physicians and the nurses who I've worked with. I mean, I've seen it, 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 it is just human nature. You know, especially when we have a licensable degree or we have a lofty title or position or we're making a lot of money, we just don't want to say anything for a whole host of reasons. And I understand that. I mean, that was me. And so I always, uh, I tell folks, um, the more we start normalizing our experience of stress at work and the more we start having open conversations about it, whether it's in one-on-ones, whether it's in our team meetings, just talking about it. We don't have to have deep life confessionals, but it's really powerful when a leader says, you know, I experienced this particular challenge on this particular project. I got really stuck. I got frustrated. I couldn't sleep. I got really stressed. Here's how it impacted me. Here's what I did. And here's what I learned from it. So here I am. So I don't do that again. Um, leaders really have to lead the way in terms of modeling this, this behavior and this conversation. And so just putting it out there. I mean, every everybody feels stress at work at some point. It's just a matter of the degree and frequency. And so this is something we should be able to talk about. This is something we should be able to bring up. We should normalize it so that it's not so weird. Um, and then also really paying attention to fostering trust within a group. Because if I trust people on my team and if I trust my group, it's going to make it more likely that I'm going to raise my hand earlier and say something because I know I'm not going to be singled out, embarrassed, put down, penalized, somehow punished for doing that. So um, so talking about it, I think, is certainly one of the things, the best thing that I have seen help in all of those, with all of those professions and all of the work um, that I have that I have done and with leaders really modeling that behavior and 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 saying this is an important thing we're going to take seriously and here's how we're going to demonstrate that and then actually walking the talk is critical. Yeah, and you've expressed that you've experienced job burnout and you've come out, you know, the other side and you've now got this toolkit of things you can help other people with. And I'm sure that you've used that to help yourself as well. Um, I'd love to talk about, you know, renewing our enthusiasm for our job after experiencing burnout. So is there a practice that you do to, you know, achieve a decent work-life balance and maintain what you've worked for now? There, there's a, a kind of a set of skills under the category of um, what I would call mental strength or cognitive agility. I, I don't know what what the best phrase is, but I realized just through the course of you know my teaching with the soldiers and and with all manner of professional, how much we get in our own heads when we're under stress and how much energy and time that wastes when we're in those moments. 
And so for me, recognizing, first of all, what those issues were and the counterproductive thinking styles I experienced when I was under a lot of stress was an enormous help. And then working some strategies on a consistent basis, um, it hasn't, it's not, these are thinking styles that will never be eradicated for me, but they don't sting nearly as much. And so it's recognizing when I'm catastrophizing. Um, when something has gone wrong and I'm thinking it into the situation where in five minutes I'm living in a band down by the river and it's all going to go bad and wrong. And so um, there's a short little skill, I call it your horror movie, Disney movie documentary. So when you are in moments <laughs> like that, write down what is the horror movie that you're telling yourself, right? Like literally like, like write it all down and then give yourself the opposite side. What's the Disney movie? It's all going right. Not just right, but like rainbows and unicorns and flowers and everything's all good. And it is it helps your brain come back to the the just the facts. Yeah, this might not be a great situation, but I'm not going to have to move back in with my parents because of what happened. Um, I'm not going to be able to buy an island in the Bahamas and move in next to Oprah. Um, but, I, you know, here's what I'm really dealing with and here's what I can do to move forward. So it's a nice way to center that. So I um, so I work that exercise myself. I'm very much an overthinker. And so um, there are there's a whole suite of what I teach called mental games. So these um, distraction techniques to kind of change the channel of your thinking with your with your brain. Um, and one that I love specifically is called the alphabet game. So it, it, a drill sergeant actually taught me this. So you start with the letter A and you make a sentence where all of the words in the sentence start with the letter A. So you could say all awesome aardvarks are amazing. That <laughs> it doesn't have to. It can be silly. And you just go into B, C, you know, cycle through the alphabet. And I find that by the time I get to about the middle of the alphabet, I'm, I've distracted myself enough from what I've been overthinking that I can get back to the task at hand, whether that's falling asleep because I'm laying in bed at 11 at night overthinking something, or maybe refocusing on an article or what have you that I have to write. So, so those mental, cognitive, mental strength techniques have helped me enormously um, I also have, I've, I've lived with a lot of anxiety since about a teen, being a teenager. And so for me, I have to have some manner of consistent exercise in my life. And so for me, that's usually running or kickboxing or something um, kind of strenuous of that nature. Just feels like it sort of drains me of that excess sort of physical and mental energy. And so I control my anxiety very much that way. Um, and then, as I mentioned earlier, I really deprioritized a lot of, um, you know, friendships and, and relationships and have made a concerted effort over the years to make sure that I have regular doses of interaction, whether that's Zoom, whether that's a phone call and hearing somebody's voice, whether that's going out to lunch with somebody, of people in my life who I care for and care about and I know who care about me. And so those are really the three big buckets that I personally pay attention to. I'm much more boundaried than I used to be. I say no to a lot more things. I still struggle with it. I will always struggle with it. Uh, I'm not good at it sometimes, but 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 having specific, you know, I think about it actually because I'm a single mom too, and I think about it as like putting a little square like around, like literally a boundary or a box around something where this is this is off limits. Like you're not you're not going to be able to get into this this little square or box or area of my work or my life, uh, and that has been extraordinarily helpful as well. 
Yeah, amazing. And I love the strategies you shared. So like the horror movie, Disney movie one, I f that's so like genius. I love thinking about it in that aspect. Um, and then the distraction technique as well. I feel like for overthinkers, also like myself, like finding something that actually works to distract you from that massive train of thought that you can go on if you actually let yourself think about something too much is really great. Yes. Yes. And I mean, there's lots of little strategies. Another one that I talked to um, folks about too is to change your password. And so uh, it's a great little sort of subtle, almost subconscious way of tricking your brain into thinking it in a direction that you want it to go in more. So you could change your password to uh, a positive emotion word. You could change your password to a goal that you have. Maybe you want to take a fancy vacation next year and vacation in Paris. And so change your password to vacation in Paris. Um, you could change it to, you know, remember the breathing technique, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you want is limited only by your imagination, but it's a, it's a form of priming. So it gets your brain to go in a direction that we don't have to do a lot of thinking about. So there's that one. That's, I do that all the time. I, I've almost told my password to so many people <laughs> because of <laughs> example, but I don't want to give that example. And so, um, yeah. So um, another one uh, comes from a colleague of mine. Um, she's um, she's actually based in New Zealand. Dr. Lucy Hone, who does a lot of work in in the grief and resilience area, uh, and she asks a really powerful question, and that is, is it helping or harming? So when you're sitting there trying to decide, should I go to bed or should I stay up an extra hour and watch that reality show, you can decide, is it helping or harming? Maybe tonight, you know, I just need to blow off a little bit of extra steam. So I'm going to wake up, you know, stay up a little bit later and, and I'll, you know, deal with the lack of sleep tomorrow. Um, is the second glass of wine or the third glass of wine helping or harming? Uh, is not asking your boss for critical feedback helping or harming? You know, is not repairing the the stressful uh, argument that you had with your sister-in-law last holiday, helping or harming. And so it puts you back in the driver's seat and gives you some control over whatever the situation is. And that can really promote resilience. Yeah, for sure. And it's super simple as well, like asking yourself, is it helping or harming? And I feel like sometimes people might struggle if we're throwing out strategies that are really complex or anything like that. But having something as simple as that, that you can literally think of on the spot is really great. Yes. Yes. I, I love those little techniques. They, they, they help me enormously when I just, I, you know, I've got so much going on and I just need like a little statement to ground me or a little statement to we need some perspective in the moment with with whatever it is and oftentimes that's all we need yeah beautiful well thank you for sharing those ones with us i feel like we've got a really great sort of toolkit of all these strategies we can use now um i feel like even if you're not experiencing burnout or if you're just feeling like overwhelmed like you can still use these strategies i'm sure yes yes it's a, it's a starting point that isn't like oh my gosh i think i need to leave my job Right. Because if we're at a, mm. a point where we're thinking like that, that's that can feel overwhelming. That can keep us locked into a situation. We, we might not know what to do first. Uh, and so when you break it down into some of these little questions that can help at least just get you started. And oftentimes that's what that's what we need is just a little momentum in a in a direction that's going to help us. 
Yeah, beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing those with us. Um, we've now got our questions from the audience, which I'd love to ask you. So my first one for you is, will it be possible to spark enthusiasm even on the job that we've been doing for a really long time? Yes. And I think uh, this. what's important is that if we're, if, especially if we've been doing something for a long time, we need some variety. We need some challenge. And I task everyone to think about what does that look like for you? Is that taking on a project that you've never tried before? Is that authoring an article perhaps uh, in a new area where you can you know, see that perhaps published with your name on it? Uh, we, we don't like stagnating at work. And when we get to that point, it can feel demotivating and it can feel frustrating. And it's an important, um, it's an important need that we have to, to just, um, it's psychological fuel, if you will, for our enthusiasm and motivation. And so, um, anytime that we on our own, and I, I would say this is, this is an important area for individual contributors. Don't just wait for your boss or your manager to kind of steer your career, your next project. I mean, really, really jump in and identify what some of those areas of challenge might look like for you. Uh, maybe it's now you're going to do a little bit of mentoring or coaching um, because you're in a more senior position and you, you know, you just got the nuts and bolts technical work down of your work. And so thinking about what being intentional and thinking about what that looks like, I think is really, really important. But we yeah, need that. Yeah, sure. And that. Yeah, definitely. And just in terms of being intentional, like how do we go about, you know, making sure what we're doing is actually what we want to be doing and we're not trying to just do it for the sake of, you know, oh, maybe this might just make me enthusiastic. Sure. I mean, thinking about, um, you know, is what you're doing, does it make sense for you? Is it giving you meaning? Are you seeing specifically what the impact is that you're making? Uh, I think we have to start asking ourselves some of those questions. And I think a lot of people started to do that during the pandemic. I think that's why you saw a lot of the great resignation happen is that we finally sat down and asked ourselves those those tough questions. And I know I certainly, burnout, I think about burnout as a blessing for me right now because that's what forced me to sit down and think about like, what do I really want in my career? Is practicing law or at least practicing in this area of law fulfilling to me? Is it, is it make, do I feel like I'm making an impact? And I didn't, and so I ended up creating my own <laughs> my own impact. But um, you know, I think those are really great questions for us to really be honest with ourselves about and think about. And it doesn't mean again that you have to you know do a wild career shift or what have you, but it helps us start to be more intentional about looking for those entry points and pockets to those things, which then become very motivating and fortifying and helpful and help us with that enthusiasm and motivation piece. Yeah, definitely. And before I know you were talking a bit about boundaries and how in your life you've started to set some boundaries. So I think this question's pretty relevant. Um, so are there, so there are people who struggle with obviously setting boundaries at work. Um, what advice do you have for establishing and maintaining healthy boundaries in the workplace? So, so it's first of all, getting clear about what they are for yourself. Like what is a boundary for you? So, I mean, and this totally depends on where you are at life and what you want that boundary to be. So I know a lot of parents, for example, will say, I'm leaving work at, you know, for example, five o'clock because I have to go pick up my kids and then I will, you know, log back on or do whatever I have to do, maybe say at like seven o'clock or eight o'clock after dinner and bedtime. 
So that's a boundary. That's saying I am offline and unavailable during that particular period of time. So you have to, first of all, get clear and comfortable with owning that for yourself, right? Because there's a lot of guilt then that comes with setting boundaries because we feel like we're letting ourselves or we're letting our someone else down because we're kind of doing something a little bit different than maybe what other folks are doing or we're saying something about it. Um, and then you actually have to say something about it. You have to communicate to your team. You have to tell people, look, here's what I need and here's what I'm going to do for the next handful. Of, you know, this is the block of time that I need to, to you know, block off. Um, if there's an emergency, you know, let me know. Uh, you know, there are always exceptions to the rule, but for the most part, this is this is what I'm going to stick to. And oftentimes I find that once you're clear about what the boundary is, and then you're very clear about communicating it, people's expectations oftentimes will fall in line, not always. Um, and then you have to deal with the people who try to push the boundaries and change the boundaries and just reassert what it is that it is. Um, but you know, you can do this effectively, I think, at all levels of your career. I think sometimes we think that we can't set a boundary like that until we're, you know, the leader of the team or the high level boss or the company CEO or what have you. Um, and your boundaries may have to look a little bit different if you're just sort of starting out and you're newer to your career. But uh, you know, you certainly don't want to leave people with the impression that you're gonna say no all the time when you're establishing your reputation. Um, but again, it just depends on what's important to you. You know, it might be a softball league or a cricket league or, uh, you know, some other sport that you know is going to give you some of that energy and enthusiasm and downtime and recovery back. And so maybe it's once a week, I'm leaving at six o'clock and I'm going to go, you know, do that sporting event and, you know, I'll check my emails and everything, but this is, this is, you know, kind of what I need. So getting really clear about what that is and then communicating it are the two pieces. Yeah, amazing. And I feel like, you know, it's a really hard thing to do to sort of set those boundaries and actually stick with it, especially if you've been doing the exact opposite thing for like pretty much your entire career. Um, so how can people, you know, stick to what they set for themselves? Yeah. <laughs> uh a lot of it is dealing with our own internal narratives because we're going to have a lot of that head talk start to come up, um, usually in the form of guilt. Uh, and so the emotion of guilt is driven by thinking that our thinking that we're saying to ourselves, I'm letting myself or somebody else down. It's like, oh man. Yeah, you know, I, if I, you know, leave work and I've got three hours where I'm, you know, devoted to family and kids, that means, you know, my team might have to take on some extra stuff and I'm putting them in that position and I don't want to do that and I feel bad. So we have to really uh, start to sort through those narratives and those values and, and think about, I always think about like to saying no frees you up, saying no to something you don't want to do or, or can't do frees you up to say yes to something that you really do want to do and that can make an impact. So I have to think about that with my own work. Uh, and if there's really a speaking engagement that I don't want to do, it's going to be hard for me to say no to it in part because I'm a people pleaser. So I'm still consistently going back to and having to deal with that narrative. But then I think to myself, there could be another opportunity that could come along that I'm going to jump on that's going to be an easy yes. And then that's going to that success is going to reinforce the boundary and make me feel better about saying no again in the future. So this is not an easy practice. This is trial and error. Uh, I have a, a Forbes article. I'm a Forbes contributor. And one of my articles is 
um, tips for saying no, you know, without feeling guilty. So you could always Google Google my name and that article and find some other strategies. But give yourself some slack. Here's a, a, where we need a lot of self compassion because we're going to mess this up. We're going to have to try again. Uh, we may get called out on by somebody at work where people are going to be frustrated. We're going to feel guilty. Like we just have to really know that the benefit of what we're trying to do is going to give us some of that recovery and stress relief and whatever you want out of the boundary and keep that in mind as well. What is the benefit that I'm going to get from this, even if I have to kind of struggle through this and mess it up a little bit? Yeah, for sure. And I feel like that idea of being okay with saying no is really important because no, saying no is seen as this really negative thing. Like, why can't we just say yes all the time? You know, why can't we just say no all the time? Like, I feel like saying no shouldn't be a bad thing. No, and saying no is a complete no. sentence. Because for a lot of yeah. us, we say, no, I'm sorry, I can't because, and then we go on and on about why, you yeah. know. And you may need to explain some things to your to your boss. If you're, you know, at your kid's school and they want you to volunteer for the 17th committee, you can just say no and that can be it. Uh, so it's, um, it's really hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, as someone who is a people pleaser as well, I feel like every time I do say no, I'm like, no, but, and then I feel like I have to justify myself with this entire essay of why I'm saying no so I can make myself feel better about saying no, which shouldn't yeah. always be the case. Yes. And I think it also waters down a little bit your your no, because then you mm. open for other people to kind of make another attempt like, oh, she doesn't sound like she's completely sure about this. So let me ask her again and really make her feel like, you know, even a little bit more guilty or that, you know, maybe she'll change her mind. Um, so. Yeah. And I guess where that whole thing of being intentional comes in, like if you're saying no, be intentional with it and mean it as well. That can probably help. Intentional, be strategic, right? Again, if we're talking about a work workplace knows we can't say no to everything or that's going to be noticed and recognized. So, you know, really, you know, doing good work and, and sort of earning some of those additional boundaries can help. But, um, but really, you know, trying to have a perspective about what that looks like. Yeah. And do you think that the strategy of, you know, prioritizing saying no sometimes can help us achieve a better work-life balance? For sure. I mean, because I, I think the whole point of it is to set you up to be able to free your time or free your energy or free your mental capacity to do something that you want to do, whether that is spending time with your family, something that you find valuable, whether that's spending time with your family, whether that's taking a walk outside whether that is going to help an elderly um, parent who is dealing with, you know, you're a caregiver or you're, you have to, you know, sort of jump into that respect. So oftentimes I think the intent of the no is a good thing. We're trying to get to some, some place where we just feel better about whatever it is that we want to do or we're working toward doing something that is meaningful and impactful for us. And again, so I think that's why we've got to think about that end of the equation too, as we're dealing with all of the guilt and the other things that are coming up, kind of pushing us back into the, the way we've always done it. 
Yep, definitely. And I think that's something that's really important to highlight. I also realize I've just turned this into my own personal Q&A, um, <laughs> but I definitely think we've covered the audience questions, um, hopefully. So I'd love to move into our open mic section, which is our last section for this episode. So the floor is yours to just talk about anything that you would like to. Oh, there's so much to think about. Uh, but one spot that I think is a really important area for folks to think about now at work, particularly leaders, although it doesn't have to be leaders, it can be all of us, is this notion of recognition and appreciation at work. I think that a lot of the stress that we experience and a lot of the ugh, quiet quitting or loud quitting or whatever word or phrase you want to give to it uh, isn't doesn't stem solely from this. But I think that we have to do a better job at work at telling people how much we value them and really unlocking that sense of mattering. Like I, I matter, like I'm at work and I am cared about and cared for and, and doing that in a way that is authentic and matches how I want that to look like, I think is really one of the big next frontiers to be tackled in this conversation. And I think it is low hanging fruit I think to tell somebody thank you and then add a couple of extra sentences, I call it a thank you plus. Add a couple of extra sentences and you, again, you don't don't need to hear this from your leader. You can peer-to-peer -peer recognition is important. Um, to say like, you know, what you did helped me or impacted me in this way and be specific. Or I saw you display your strength of kindness when you interacted with that really tough patient. That was spectacular. Like just adding those extra like little pieces of the puzzle, unlock that psychological fuel that says, I belong here. Um, this is where I'm supposed to be. Uh, I matter and I feel valued. And when we get that, it's really, I call it sticky recognition. It's really hard to turn off. That's the thing that makes us go, huh, I don't think I want to leave this place because I don't think I'm going to get this same type of sticky recognition somewhere else. And so it really helps turn on engagement and wanting to stay um, places. And, you know, talent retention is a huge issue right now. So, so for me, it really goes back to that notion of, you know, let's refocus on something that takes a couple of minutes, is free, uh, something you can do like literally right now, uh, and the payoff can be extraordinary. So... That's, that is my parting message. I love that. And while you were talking about that, I started to think about imposter syndrome and how it's something that a lot of people deal with now. And I feel like this idea of mattering and belonging and cultivating a space where you feel like you matter and you feel like you belong and others do too can also help sort of mitigate those sort of negative, nasty feelings of imposter syndrome. I have not thought about that connection. And I think that is a very interesting connection to really explore and to think about. Because if I have a very keen sense of mattering and belonging and impact and respect, which is really what you know this turns on as well, uh, it's probably going to unlock a different type of headspace and thought process about myself and my capabilities. And so that's that's really interesting. So I'm in the process, and I just submitted my uh, my book proposal for my second book, and this is going to be the this sticky recognition piece is going to be 
certainly a chapter, if not a bigger segment of that book. And so that's an intersection that I'll explore and that I will make sure to give you credit for making me think about. Oh, (laughs) thank you. I mean, sticky recognition. I love that phrasing. I feel like Mm -hmm. even just the word sticky recognition really sticks in your mind. And it's something you can think of when you're at work and when you're feeling like something's missing and you're like, maybe it is that, you know, recognition. Yes. Yes. And I think it's talking about this in a work context, but I think that's also really important in our personal lives as well. You know, in our um, relationships with our spouses and our significant others and our friends and our family, generally, we want to know that same thing. We want to feel appreciated. We want to feel respected. We want to feel, you know, like people really care about us. And I think oftentimes they do. We just don't say it for a whole host of reasons. And so getting better at actually saying that in our personal lives, too, I think is really Yeah, for sure. And I'm glad we brought this up because it not only matters, like you said, in our work life, but also our personal life. So thank you so much. Well, that also brings us to the end of today's episode. So thank you again for joining us. I really enjoyed chatting to you about job burnout. I feel like it's not something I get to talk about every day and I've definitely learned some new strategies. So thank you. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciated this. Yeah, of course. And for those of us who want to find out a bit more about you, where can we go? Sure. My website is really the hub of all of my my stuff. And so that is stressandresilience.com. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. Well, we also have Paula's details down in the description below. And to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. You have been listening to Work in Progress the personal productivity science insights podcast produced by the life management science labs. Listen to episodes from LMSL's 10 life management perspectives on Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or other podcasting apps on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it and us grow to bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, pp.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Joanna. Thanks for tuning in.